HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. gonna be our last one of the set. So it's called Broke Down. Good afternoon and welcome to What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, I am on the line today with my my good friend and colleague, Ms. Emily Meredith. Emily is the um, communications director of um, the Animal Agriculture Society. And those of you who listen regularly to my show know that Emily invited me to be a speaker, which I thought showed an unbelievable um, amount of courage on her part to bring a loose cannon like me in. But I got to speak at her uh, Animal Agricultural Alliance 13th Annual Summit. Um, it was called Activists at the Door, and my segment was about managing crisis. Um, Emily, welcome back to the program. Uh, for those of you who have been on before, you might remember that Emily has also uh, come on to talk about agricultural gag laws, which is what we call them on our side of the fence, and what they call farm protection bills on their side of the fence. Um, welcome back, Emily. I'm going to give you a quick profile here just so people know. You are the communications director for the Animal Agriculture Alliance, which is a trade association for the meat industry. Um, the, anal- the alliance includes individuals, companies, and organizations who are interested in helping consumers better understand the role that animal agriculture plays in providing a safe and abundant food supply to a hungry world. And Emily is also um, the blogger who uh, Pens, the activist watch for meetingplace.com. Again, one of my most favorite publications, certainly a very informative thing. So welcome back to the program, Emily. It's really nice to hear your voice again, even though we haven't heard it yet. <laughs> well, you too. I, you know, always love to be on Katie. So I know, and you're really a great spokesman. And the thing that I love about you is no matter how mean my question is, you never get ruffled. And I think that's probably why you're so good at your job. So um, <laughs> one of the things when we were talking about setting, well, first of all, we should let people know that um, on, uh, I think it was what, June 
when did that post? June 12th or something like that, June 11th? I think May 20, oh, from The Daily Show? No, or? from The Huffington, oh, you were on The Daily Show. You were on The I Daily was. Show? Okay. Yes, I was on, uh, June 11th, my birthday, actually. Oh, my God. I was on The Daily Show. Why didn't you tell me? I would have watched. Well, you can find it online. I'm going um, to. They did a segment about this whole topic, actually, and of course, it was a parody um, of both sides. Yes. But, you know, I thought it was actually it was actually very funny, and I thought they did a good job with it. So, oh, I love that idea, and I'm going to put it up on uh, you know my page here on the show or something like that. Anyway, so we were talking, um, you know, we were talking about animal agricultural laws, but one of the things that you and I had spoken about as we were preparing to set up this broadcast was the fact that you are the one who kind of has to do the triage when some new explosive and horrible uh, article comes out about the animal agricultural industry. In this case, I'm referring to the May 23rd uh, piece in the Village Voice, which showed some actually quite dated material. There was nothing very new there. As I reviewed it again today, I realized that it went back like three, four years. But still, pretty egregious stuff um, that was being shown. And and as you may remember, I said to you, I hope they're paying you enough. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to manage this kind of story. So what happens when, when something like that, first of all, how do you find out about those? Do they like, you know, your constituency calls in and says, oh my God, Emily, yet another horror show on the on the internet or on the TV or in the newspaper. And then what do you do? How do you deal with that? Well, I have to say that a lot of my constituency is likely not reading the Village Voice. Um, so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I do a lot of internal, not that it, you know, I love the Village Voice. I'm married to a New Yorker. You know, we we get it and we read it online. But um, many of my constituents, many of our members likely do not read that publication. So mm. um, I have to do a lot of media monitoring, and that's typically how I find out about that stuff. But I was actually quoted in that article. Yes, um, I were. actually did an interview with the author um, and we talked at length and you know of course not a lot of what I said made it into the article but I actually thought that he managed to get a lot of different perspectives and I kind of helped him identify some other people he could talk to um, of course on our side of the aisle about why um, legislation like the farm protection is so important and um, kind of the truth behind it and kind of sort of trying to correct some of that misinformation that's out there. But certainly, you know, the headline and a lot of the opening pages didn't um, lay it out in the most um, helpful manner to our side. But I do think that at the end, there was a lot of information that hopefully people had a chance to read if they read through the whole article that really does present kind of some of the other arguments about this issue. Yeah. Well, so what are the other arguments about this issue? Like, I mean, why is it? I I think the consumer backlash against, uh, you know, the farm protection bills has done more to hurt your industry from a public relations point of view than possibly anything that could ever have been posted. Um, So tell me some of the arguments that you feel uh, mitigate that that customer relations um, disaster, at least from my point of view. Well, I think, number one, I mean, this is something that I often say a lot, and I think I even said it uh, the last time we talked about this, Mm -hmm. but that it's really bad business to be abusing your animals. And Mm -hmm. so I think that that's a fundamental um, position that needs to be better understood. And there, in fact, I believe is a farmer um, or rancher that's quoted in the article talking about how, you know, it's just bad for business. These animals Mm -hmm. are really their livelihood, so it just doesn't make any sense. And a lot of times if there are employees who have been improperly trained or, or whatever the reason is um, that they're engaged in abuse, which again, I would emphasize is, is rare instances. But if that's going on, um, 
a lot of these farmers don't aren't given the opportunity to take corrective action, and if they were, they would be taking that that action would be to fire that employee um, because mm-hmm. obviously that individual can't handle being around animals, and no, no farmer wants to put their livelihood and their family's business in jeopardy. So I think that's probably the strongest argument, and then the secondary argument, which often comes up, and I know which I've said before, is that um, you know these videos are great for these organizations fundraising campaigns and they oftentimes hold this footage and again without giving the farmer or the you know owners any opportunity to address the situation or even the local authorities to address you know legitimate abuse allegations and they release the footage when it's most convenient for them which in my mind is a disservice to their whole agenda if you're really about protecting animal welfare then you should be um reporting or releasing that footage as soon as possible and getting getting that situation taken care of so that animals aren't theoretically continuing to be abused while you bide your time and edit your footage to release it later. Well, I know, you know, I've heard that argument and you certainly say it very convincingly, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> I got to hand it to you, girl. You are absolutely awesome at your job. But the fact is, is that you can't, um, you know, I, I'm not sure that all of these videos are edited, but uh, maybe they are. But the fact is, is that what people are seeing on those videos is actually happening. And, and so, you know, you can complain about whether or not the information is released in a timely fashion or, and, you know, whether or not these people are using it to raise money, et cetera, all of which I'm rather skeptical of, frankly. Um, but the fact is, is that these abuse do take place. And, and so the, I'm going to actually jump forward a little bit with you because um, I wanted to ask you something uh, very specific about this. Why is it, since it is bad for business uh, on a sort of global scale, um, why don't the trade associations say, for instance, beef checkoff or pork checkoff or poultry checkoff, which is the big trade association that everybody pretty much pays into, right? I think, I don't know if people realize that there are these associations that pretty much everyone who is uh, involved in industrialized farming um, participates in one of those checkoff programs. Is that an accurate or fair thing to say? Would you say? Um, I would say that, that that that's pretty much fair. But there's trade. I mean, it's not just the agriculture industry that has trade organizations. No, of I mean, there's not. trade organizations for, you know, radio broadcasters. So it's yeah, not yeah, like yeah. it's, you know, big bad business hiding behind. Oh, no, I know, don't mean to imply that at like all. like me. Right. No, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I'm I know. not trying I to imply that. I just want to make that. sure that viewers aren't, you know, listeners right. aren't misinterpreting that. No, no, no. But what um, I am saying is that there is an organization that kind of um, oversees the industry, as it were. You're one of those organizations that's kind of a mouthpiece, right? A trade association is generally there to sort of promote the the, the industry and to clear up misconceptions or what have you. Um, and so right. I'm wondering, in the case of something like the checkoff programs, where, where producers actually do pay into that, um, as opposed to your organization, in which I don't think they do, um, but which they do pay into for that service, essentially, of uh, running ads, beef, what's for dinner, and that kind of business. Um, why don't the, why doesn't that kind of organization take a stronger stance about these issues and, and institute their own monitoring or policing uh, situations so that they then can levy fines or otherwise penalize people who are in the program and who continue to have these violations? I think that would do more to curb uh, on-farm animal abuse or in packing plant animal abuse than anything else because, after all, money talks, right, girl? Well, money certainly talks, but I will say, you know, they do have these programs in place. I mean, not the fine component of that. I don't know how that would be administered or what kind of, uh, how hard that would be to implement, but 
they do have training programs in place, um, quality assurance programs, which train on a variety of levels from food safety to um, employee safety and then also, you know, animal husbandry and good animal welfare practices. And Mm -hmm. so to be certified by these various programs within the species groups, you have to go through all these trainings, implement the trainings in your within your um, employees, make sure you're training them according to these standards set by many of the trade associations, and then they have independent auditors that come out and certify that you have implemented the trainings, that your employees have been trained properly, and then uh, only then will they certify that you are a member of this very high standard program. So those programs are in place for sure, and I think the problem that agriculture runs into is that um, it's hard to communicate about that stuff. I mean, I think you know, journalists, you know, no one's just going to write a story about that. I mean, the ag media does, and we thank them I for would. that, and they help us get, you know, meeting place to write stories about that all the time. But mm-hmm. unless you have a vested interest like you do, or you're curious, or you, you know, just love to learn about agriculture, you're not reading those stories, unfortunately. So it's only when we're presented with controversies like this, where some of that information gets out, and people like me, and then communications folks at the other trade associations help to get that information out when these, you know, sort of controversies present themselves, because otherwise, you know, no one's picking up a paper to read about the newest um, program that's been implemented, you know, nationwide in the pork, beef, chicken, you know, industries, right, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> so, Well, it is unfortunate, and I wonder why you guys don't do more to place stories like that. It seems to me that, um, you know, you've got the opportunity, uh, just as I do, to say blog on the Huffington Post or write into the Atlantic or something like that, you know, places where there's so many places to go with um, food information now, especially online. Uh, it's it's kind of striking to me that there isn't more of a propaganda initiative from your side. Instead, there's more of a hunkering down and like, oh my God, consumers just don't get it, do they? Um, and that's something that you and I are going to talk about in just a second. But for now, we're going to take a short sponsor drop break. Please Stay with us. Emily, stay on the line, and we'll be right back with Emily Meredith, uh, the Communications Director for the Animal Agriculture Alliance. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. We are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insight with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And on the line, I have Emily Meredith, the Communications Director for the Animal Agriculture Alliance, a trade association for the livestock industry. Um, this is her second appearance on my show. I'm really happy that she takes time out of her busy day and um, and answers some questions that I think are, are really important about how our food is raised and what is you know, what's really going on behind all the hype and plenty, plenty of hype going on. That's for sure. Uh, from, from one side or the other. <laughs> so Emily, let's, let's 
zero in on something that you have to deal with um, as a, you know as sort of the communications director that somebody who's trying to to you know correct impressions that may not be exactly accurate about your industry. So, what are the two, three, or four top uh, impressions of the media industry that you feel are unfair or inaccurate and that need to be addressed? Well, I think they all kind of go together. I think the first one I would think of is something that, you know, I mentioned previously, which was that the industry is generally abusive. I think that's a term or a phrase that gets thrown around a lot, and I know that the detractors um, like to kind of say that, um, you know, you had mentioned we're not, you know, why do we keep seeing these videos? Well, in a lot of the recent videos, and like you had astutely pointed out, the Village Voice piece didn't show a lot of new material. But what you are seeing, what we are seeing um, more recently over the last year or so is videos that are presenting kind of standard industry practices with either no explanation or a false explanation and really portraying using the videos to kind of shock and awe the consumer. And so the ag industry is coming from behind trying to explain what a lot of those practices look like. And unfortunately, the term that gets thrown around is that, you know, our industry is generally abusive in everything that it does and in the practices that it uses, and that's just completely false. You know, these practices have been developed by the people that work with animals every day. And I frankly... um don't feel like I'm qualified to tell our farmers and ranchers how to raise their animals because I don't work with them every day. And they have they work with them day in, day out. They consult their veterinarians. They consult behaviorists. Um, they've worked with a group of experts to kind of develop these practices. And while it may not look like how consumers see it in their minds, perhaps, um, it's how it's been determined to be the safest and most humane way to raise animals for food. And so I think that that's the number one misconception, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, number two would certainly be the idea of factory farming. Um, it's definitely a catchy phrase that gets thrown around a lot. And unfortunately, Katie, this is something that really bothers me, is we get beat on a lot of this stuff in terms of coming up with some catchy phrases. Um, you know, <laughs> ag-ag is very catchy. Factory farming is very catchy. I know you throw around industrial farming. Um, I'm I sure do. the courtesy not to use the catchphrase <laughs> to me. Um, no, I just but, think of it as industrial farming. It's, it's farming on a very large scale with industrial-style right. practices. Yeah, I think it's an accurate way of describing it, no? No, I I would think it's accurate. And I think the problem, again, that we have is that, you know, when consumers, since they are approximately, you know, Americans, when I say, you know, I've said this before, Americans are three generations removed from the family farm, meaning that, you know, back in the day, many people raised their own food and now they don't. And now they're in cities like New York or Chicago or Los Angeles and they, have many of them haven't seen a farm um, and ha- don't have that connection. So they're removed from that. And so when they think of farming, they think of that very picturesque, romantic, old McDonald farm. And I think that when they're presented with the images of what it looks like now, they can't match up the two in their head and they're confused. And so they immediately go to the fact that, well, this must be negative because we're being told that it's wrong and that it's bad. And so we have to believe that because it doesn't match up with what they see in their head. When in reality, the way, the reason it doesn't look like how it used to is because you don't want it to. The industry is safer. It's evolved to be safer. It's evolved to be more humane. It's evolved to be more efficient so that we can feed more people and do it better and do it better for worker safety, doing better for animal husbandry. And so just like you wouldn't use a, you know, drive a Model T Ford, it may look cool, but you're not going to drive it today. You don't want agriculture to look the way it did 
50, 100 years ago. And we, as the industry, just need to do a better job of explaining you know, the rationale behind those decisions. Well, I'm going to stop you there because I think that there are some things that go on now that are part of the industrial model of farming, of livestock, uh, you know, production, um, which wouldn't have happened 100 years ago and which I'm sure people wish didn't happen now. And I'm talking specifically about battery cages for poultry, about gestation stalls for pork or, or you know, uh, confined area spaces for pork. I'm talking about, um, you know, debeaking, uh, tail docking, all that kind of stuff that goes on frequently without uh, antibi- uh, antibiotics, frequently without any anesthesia, things like that. Now, those are the things that I think really upset consumers, um, particularly gestation stalls being the best example of that because it's been the most visible. Um, but those are practices that did not exist 100 years ago that have come into existence merely to support industrialized farming. And I can't say that uh, there's probably a consumer on this planet who thinks that that is better uh, for the animal than what was going on 100 years ago, regardless of how inefficient that may have been. How do you respond to that, Emily? I mean, you know, you know as well as I do that that stuff is not pretty. I mean, I think it's hard for consumers to understand, but I would disagree with you saying that it's been adopted to support industrial farming. You know, gestation stalls, there is a debate going on right now, but just like the farmer who was interviewed for the Village Voice, the stalls weren't designed to, you know, hurt animals or make them crazy or decrease their quality of life. Rather, they were, um, you know, introduced to protect the sows during the very fragile time when they're pregnant, protect them from other sow aggression, and um, protect their young piglets. And so there are always rationales behind these practices, and it's just about explaining those. And I don't know what's going to happen in the gestation stall group housing debate, but I would adamantly say that I think the people that should be making those decisions are experts and people who work with the animals and people that um, work with veterinarians and behaviorists and all those good folks who do this for a living and not the group of people that want to um, detract from the industry or really bring about an end to the industry, those aren't the folks I would trust to be making my decision. I think if you're a consumer and you have questions, you know, go talk to a farmer or read articles like that. The industry is trying to get out and um, correct that misinformation. And, you know, I would welcome honest questions, and I know a lot of people in at the trade associations would as well. So if you want to have those conversations, come to the people working with the people that work with the animals as opposed to the people working against the people that work with the animals. Right. I, I totally endorse that concept. I mean, go to the source, the people who are actually doing this and make up for your own minds whether or not you think um, that these models um, are worth they're wild because, I mean, let's face it, they do, um, I mean, among the many uh, advantages, and you're talking about protecting, uh, you know, pregnant sows, and I understand that, but I've also seen them in open housing um, where there is no aggression because they have plenty of room to move around in, um, and that's not even, you know, not even the biggest farm, for instance. I mean, you know, it's uh, it takes some space, but they don't need a lot of space, but they certainly don't need to be like 20 of them in a little pen uh, biting each other's tails off. And um, but the 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 point I'm trying to make here is that that these these practices do uh, lend themselves to increasing the bottom line. And I think that's where consumers really get the most uh, disturbing view of the industry, because, you know, a lot of these practices, including the use of antibiotics, um, you know, sub 
low dose, let's call it low dose. I know Dr. Raymond would just flip if I said subtherapeutic. Um, but low dose antibiotics for growth promotants, which I know is being phased out now, but still, um, you know, those kinds of practices are all about increasing the bottom line. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a business. It's not a charity. And we all understand that. But I think, I think what disturbs consumers is that there is less of a balance between um, profit over uh, you know, people, animal welfare, et cetera, than there might be. And uh, I'm going to let you respond to that. And then, unfortunately, we have to close. But I know you'll be back, Emily. <laughs> well, you know, I think I'm going to disagree with you. I know you're shocked. <laughs> but I think that, um, you know, yes, it is a business. And for anyone to not acknowledge otherwise is just silly. I mean, everyone knows it's a business. Like you said, it's not a charity. But, again, because these animals, you know, just like if you – do something else for your business. You want to make sure you're doing it to the best of your ability so that your business can go on and on. No one wants to see an end to animal agriculture, at least of all the farmers and ranchers who are out there, you know, raising animals every day for food and for their own livelihood. So I think that um, they want to make sure their industry continues, but they want to make sure it continues in the right way. And like I always say, a lot of these people have been doing this for generations, and they were taught to do this and taught to do it the right way by their grandfathers and great-grandfathers and so on and so forth, or grandmothers for that matter. There's a lot of female ranchers out there. but mm-hmm. So they, they want to uphold their family values and their morals and their ethics, and the majority of these people are doing the right thing, and um, it's an industry that I think deserves to be celebrated and not attacked as often as it is. So we need to do better, and I think consumers also need to do better in letting us know what are their concerns so that mm-hmm. we can try to answer those and pay attention to the people that are our stakeholders and ignore the people that just want to bring us down. Okay, well done. Emily, once again, you have exceeded my expectations. Um, that was just a brilliant response. And um, I, I, will, I am going to say one thing about it, though, because even though I thought it was really great, you have often made the point that modern farming is very different from the mom-and-pop type farming that consumers like to think of with the red barn on the hill and the cattle dotting the wayside, you know, the meadows and so forth. And yet you just invoked that very image in your response to my question about the, about profit over people and animal welfare. And um, I think that there has to be some kind of more realistic way of um, of illustrating what goes on in modern, modern agricultural, uh, livestock agriculture, because it's not... Uh, you know, it's not usually typically the guy with 50 or 100 head. It's, I mean, we're talking about much larger entities. And that's where we see most of these um, abuse videos uh, emanating from and so forth that you, you try so hard and so valiantly to um, <laughs> to counteract. And, you know, much as I agree with a lot of what you say, and I know there are a lot of smaller producers out there, the bigger producers are not on hands, hands on, excuse me, hands on farming, um, you know, inspecting their animals every day. It's, it's left to other workers workers to do that. And those are the workers that we see frequently in those videos, unfortunately. So um, with that, uh, sadly, we must leave it. I hate to not give you the last word, Emily, but that's the way it is. Oh, I'm the I host. you do, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the host and you're the guest. But you will come on again, I hope, and we'll talk more about this. I think it's a great discussion we're having. Let's blog again together on the Huffington Post. Folks, if you want to go to Huffington Post and see a three-way conversation between me, Emily Meredith, and Dr. Scott Hurd, veterinarian for the Livestock Industry and a former food safety inspection sir, or USDA uh, vet, he, uh, that can be found under the title Meet the Meat People. And that's on the Huffington Post. Just look it up. Thanks so much to my sponsor and thanks to my engineer. And thank you especially to my guest, Emily Meredith. We'll talk to you again and go check out her website at the Animal Agriculture Alliance. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>